Well, we have a wonderful passage again before us this morning in context uh, here for Lord's Day worship as we gather for the Lord's Supper. Again, uh, often just surprised and thankfully so at the Lord's work of uh, how so many things line up to be meaningful through the preaching of the Word and His timing and our texts and what's taking place in worship. And this morning, without uh, really remembering that we were having the Lord's Supper this morning, this passage just speaks so clearly to our need of the Supper. And I look forward to sharing that with you this morning. As we look at Luke 4, I want to kind of first consider and draw your attention to the need for overcoming sin and temptation. Overcoming sin and its temptations requires a commitment, and I speak to those who are tempted, each one of us tempted with very types of sin and injury, worry and harm, failures, some victories, but an ongoing pilgrim's journey of battling sin and temptation. As I put forward, overcoming this sin, overcoming its temptations, requires a commitment to dependence upon the Holy Spirit. Overcoming sin and its temptations requires a commitment to dependence upon the Spirit of God. And when I say a commitment to depend upon the Spirit of God, I don't mean a spiritual or mystical meditation. Oftentimes when we think of depending on the Spirit of God, sometimes it can be a bit more mystical, or oftentimes is more mystical, less concrete, less tangible. In other words, what do you mean by depending? Is it a shift in mindset simply that, no, I'm facing this temptation and I'm going to shift my mindset toward it that I might in this moment know that I am depending on the Spirit? Or no, am I now in legalism seeking in my own strength to confuse myself so as to be dependent on the Spirit? So on and so forth. What do we mean? Is there a way to kind of absolutize or concrete clearly what it means to depend upon the Spirit or to be one who is committed to a spirit of dependence upon the Spirit. And let me say to you, yes, there is a more concrete way, less mystical and more tangible. So what I mean by an absolute commitment to the dependency upon the Spirit of God is a commitment of attending to the means of grace whereby the Spirit of God, according to those means of grace, nourishes your faith, strengthens you in your warfare against sin, and assures you of God's unchangeable or immutable promises that He has made to you in the gospel. These ordinary means, or what we could call instruments, whereby the Spirit does such extraordinary works are the reading and especially the preaching of the Word of God and the reception of the sacraments. This is what it means to be a Spirit-dependent people, those who are nourished in their faith, strengthened, It is those who give themselves to the means whereby the Spirit does such work. 
not quiet time of meditation. Sure, it can include some of that in private devotion. I'm not bagging on that or tearing it down. But to be a person who truly depends upon the Spirit, it is more than that. It is one who gives themselves to the ordinary means prescribed in Scripture, whereby the Spirit of God has promised to nourish your faith in the hour of sin and temptation. The prescribed order in Scripture whereby God has pledged the person of the Spirit to strengthen you right there in the hour of temptation, to strengthen you against sin and your desire to stand against it whereby when you are tempted, God has pledged through the person of the Spirit to assure you that His promises to you in the gospel will never change. I want you to see this spirit dependency in Jesus as we connect it, what I've introed here, to the actual text itself so as to convince you of your need in the hour of temptation and sin, to rely solely upon the person and work of the Spirit to overcome. And I think we see this clearly taught through Luke as we see our Lord depend upon the Spirit in His hour of trial. Then after we kind of consider the role of the Spirit in our hour of temptation as we see it through Luke 4 in our Lord, I want us to briefly consider the inner workings for a few moments this morning, or what we might say is the nature of temptation itself, so as to identify what's going on in temptation. If we can really peel back what is most deadly about it, then we'll kind of see a way in which we can shield ourselves against it. We can perceive the deceptive work. I hope to convince you this morning of seeing those inner workings of temptation that, again, having identified we might withstand, as we see in our Lord. Look at the Spirit's first, then. If I could draw your attention to the Spirit's presence in the hour of temptation. Look at chapter 4, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 3. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Look at verse 32 just for a moment, or sorry, verse 22 of chapter 3. Look at verse 22 of chapter 3 and unite it back to what we just read in verses 1 through 3. Verse 22 And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Now, come back over from this baptismal event over to how Luke prescribes or describes the work of the Spirit in the life of our Lord. You notice in verse 1, he is now full of the Spirit. Afterward, he was led by the Spirit. Notice the progression of the Spirit's work in the life of our Lord as He faces temptation. The Spirit first, in verse 22, in the hour of baptism, descended upon Him. Then after, having descended upon Him, we are told by Luke that the Spirit filled Him for obedience. And then, 
the Spirit led him in the wilderness for 40 days. What is the point of this escalating work of the Spirit or the ongoing work? He descends, he fills, and he leads. What is Luke trying to describe for each of us here as we look at temptation in the life of our Lord? We see that the Spirit enabled Jesus to overcome the tempter in 40 days of temptation. Sometimes we read this text a little bit differently in the sense of just kind of jumping right in in verse 1, we'd say something maybe perhaps like this. If I could draw your attention, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. But if you notice the text carefully, it isn't that the Spirit led him into the wilderness, but the Spirit led him in the wilderness. There is a distinction here to note that the Greek term does not mean into, as in where to go, as in this is the pathway. Rather, the point of the Spirit's work in the wilderness is that it speaks the Spirit's leading him. Not into the wilderness, but during his time in the wilderness. This is a critical lesson for each of us in our daily Christian experience. What Luke is portraying here from our Lord's baptism to the filling of the Spirit for obedience and the Spirit's guiding and leading our Lord through the hours of temptation is that to overcome sin and temptation, as we see here in our Lord, we Christians must rely upon that same empowering presence of God the Holy Spirit. Again, this is not something that is abstract. Hard to pin down. How to know how do we depend? How are we led? How are we filled? How are we empowered? But rather concretely, it means giving ourselves to the prescribed means whereby we might be filled, whereby we might be led whereby we are nourished, whereby we are empowered with His sanctifying work. What are those means once again? It is prayer. It is the Word of God. And it is His sacraments. These are the means that the Spirit pledges to seal and to nourish and to work the promises of God into our lives. If we are to stand at all against the schemes of the devil, it will be by prayer. It will be by the nourishment of the Word. It will be by the faithful reception of the sacraments. We see all of those components in this very text. We can't make too much of our Lord's baptism. There it is, you see, again, by sacrament, the Lord being baptized. We see Him in verse 21 as well, being a man of prayer. And then we hear the divine proclamation, you are my beloved Son. And then if we went through chapter 4, we see our Lord, as we'll see next week, repeatedly using what other means whereby the Spirit will lead and empower the very Word of God. These are the appointed means whereby we will overcome 
sin and its temptations. If I could so convince you, let me say this. Without these means, regular prayer, regular exposure to the reading and especially the preaching of the Word of God and reception of the sacraments. Without this as our steady diet as the people of God, we will, absolutely we will fail in the hour of temptation time and time again. This is what it means to be Christian. This is what it means to be a spirit-dependent people. If I could draw your attention over to one other text I did want to read for you. Look at what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. Look over, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 6. I want to read the text kind of in an extended way to be able to see, once again, without these godly means. We will fail time and time again, and that's what Luke is showing us in the hour of our Lord's temptation. Ephesians 6, I'm going to begin reading in verse 10, and just see, see Paul's word to you to stand against temptation. Verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Again, let me just stop. I won't give a constant running commentary on every comma and period. Notice, again, some of our question might run to the abstract. What does it mean to be strong in the Lord? I want to be strong in the Lord. I, I want to I be strengthened in the strength, not of my own might, but of His might. But, but again, how? Is this an idea, a mindset? Or is there something more prescribed here whereby I can be in the Lord's might, whereby I am strengthened? We'll continue. He gives us exactly that logic. Verse 10, once again, finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, again, if he can repeat with emphasis of how to be strong in the Lord in such temptation, it is to take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Do you see, it, it isn't sending you out without armor. It isn't sending you out to the word of armor. But this is what the armor is, the word of God, to stand firm. This is how you'll be able to do all you can to stand firm. Verse 14, stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit 
and with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Again, back in our text, as we see here with our Lord, we must be a Spirit-dependent people, for it is the Spirit who will enable each of us to overcome sin and temptation. And how does the Spirit enable and empower and fill but through the ordinary means of prayer, word, and sacrament? Now, to make a little bit of a shift here of the role of the Spirit in the hour of our Lord's temptation, again, from His baptismal font, from the very moment of the Spirit descending, the Spirit filling, and the Spirit leading for 40 days worth of temptations, I want to draw your, your, your attention a little bit more now to the battle of what temptation is or to the nature of what temptation actually is, how it works. And if I could give you just up front, just briefly... Kind of an, uh, uh, maybe a bit simplistic version or, or definition of temptation, it would be this. At its kernel, and again, it has varied pieces and moving parts, but if we were to, to really get down to the, to the kernel of it, I'd put forward this. Temptation is a battle for truth. That's what it is. That, so so as, as we begin to face temptation as individuals, it, it, certainly fleshly, weak, and we're facing multiple uh, threads of temptation. Think of it this way as, as you, for the next few moments as we're in the text. Temptation is a battle for truth. Quite simply, the question that comes in the hour of temptation, and, and, and in this room we have multiple ways in which we're all tempted. Again, given our personal dispositions, our proclivities, our desires, our ambitions, our hard wiring, and our soft wiring, all of it, we, we, we all have what goes into making you, you, you have pers- personal points of exposure, weaknesses that are maybe different for each one, and, and God is using each one of those to conform you into His image. So each one of us are facing different challenges, different burdens that we bear, but we're all facing nonetheless, don't worry about the form, we're all facing the reality of temptation. So what is temptation? Think in your mind, this is a battle for truth. The question that is being confronted me is, can God be trusted? That's the question I'm being confronted with in this moment of weakness, in this moment of temptation. The question on my mind is this, can God be trusted? Now, look at verse 3 of chapter 4, and hopefully I can kind of persuade you to such. Verse 3 of chapter 4. Notice the temptations here. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, look over how this temptation is actually shaped by our Lord's baptismal event of verse 22. Do you notice the proclamation in verse 22? Here's reality. This is the divine voice. You, looking upon Jesus of Nazareth, standing there in the baptismal waters, the divine voice says, you, Jesus, you 
are my beloved son. Satan comes at him now. Now, there was 40 days of wilderness temptation. Here we only have a small kind of snippet of what occurred. We kind of have the back half after the ending of the 40 days of hunger. We have a small picture of what went down here. There was much more going on, of course, for 40 days. There is temptation, there is difficulty, there is trial, there is temptation. Now, look at the, what we're exposed to, at this, this craftiness of what our Lord was enduring. You are my beloved son. Well, Satan says in verse 3, if you are the son of God. You see, this is how temptation works. Satan here with our Lord wants to leverage Jesus' struggle with hunger into a much deeper question, into deeper doubts about his relationship with God the Father. Do you see, it's never mind this hunger, never mind this tangible difficulty you're going through. Yeah, 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 yeah. I want to tempt you by way of this about something way over here, about something far more fundamental to your identity. I want to make this molehill into a mountain by casting much deeper doubt upon you. This is how temptation works. It attacks you as an image bearer of God. You are rational. Each one of you, you're rational beings. Right? You're you're reasonable. You're argumentative. You understand cause and effect. You experience that emotionally and spiritually. This is where temptation attacks you. It doesn't simply point out your difficulties. Right? So it's not like, you know what? You're having a hard time. You lost a relationship. You lost a job. You have a difficulty in your marriage. You're having a hard time being understood. Okay, fine, fine, fine. It doesn't point out the difficulty. It wants to provide you with a faulty rationale as to why you're in a difficult place. And it isn't the gospel that gives you next. It isn't truth that it provides you. It is an attack upon the trustworthiness of God. Satan is essentially saying here to our Lord, you can't really be God's son, like he said. Because if you were, you wouldn't be here in this wilderness, enduring this agony with no relief in sight. Now, if I were to ask, raising of hands, how many of us have experienced similar twisting, similar confrontations, similar temptations, where we are going through something that is tangible and difficult, and the temptation wasn't to acknowledge that it's difficult, but it was rather the temptation was to appeal to our rational thinking as to why this is difficult. 
and to be thought that our relationship with God is different than we must have assumed because of what we're experiencing in time. How many of us have experienced that? How many of us have seen temptation twist our faith and put us in a place of doubt that God is not for me? He must be against me. Because if He were for me, like Satan said, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be in this wilderness place. I wouldn't be enduring this agony. I wouldn't be so lost and confused with no relief in sight. That's the deceptive work of temptation. If I could provide you with one other thought before we move forward. If you have your text, turn with me and see how to combat such twisted proof. Turn, if you would, with me to Psalm 23. Psalm 23. I think some of us getting accustomed to hearing Psalm 23 read at funerals or something of the like. Forget that this present age is actually the valley of the shadow of death. I think we we read the psalmist that, you know, someday if you go through hard times, the Lord will be there. This age is hard times. We are as pilgrims on our pathway to glory in a valley of a shadow of death. This is what temptation seeks to exploit, seeks to draw our attention to our hardships and deny the reality of God's trustworthiness by looking around you. He cannot be for me. But look at Psalm 23 and how how it draws our hearts to the way in which we are to handle hearing God rather than hearing twisted rationale. Psalm 23, 1. The Lord is my shepherd. No, see, you can't really be God's son. Like he said, you are his beloved son. I get that, but you can't be, child. You cannot belong to him. You cannot be Christian. You cannot be united to Christ. Because if you were, I get that he says in the gospel that you've been adopted into his family. I know that he said to you that he's united you to his son. I I know all that. I heard it too. You are the beloved child. I know, I know, I know. I heard it. But it can't be true because if you really were, you wouldn't be here. That's the appeal of temptation. But the believer, by the ordinary strength and means of the Holy Spirit, draws their heart to Psalm 23 and recalls by His grace, the Lord, even in this place, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me Beside still waters, he restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. 
you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup, even in this valley, overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the believer's life in the wilderness temptation. This is the way we combat the twisted rationale or the reason or the argumentation as to why God cannot be trusted. We return, not to introspection or quiet meditation, but the ordinary means of His Word, of prayer, and of His sacraments. Again, temptation wants to appeal to the why you're in a difficult place. Notice the second one from if, as Satan frames the argumentation, if you are what God said you are. This battle for truth, the second one you see in the text is the heavenly voice that states to our Lord, with you, Jesus, with you, I am well pleased. Again, from this point of the heavenly voice, Satan seeks to say something to the effect of this. Even if you do belong to him. So let's consider our Lord's temptation with the question of if you are the Son of God. And consider how Satan seeks to twist yet again the rationale of if you are, you wouldn't be here. Granted, fine. Let's move on to the second one. You are the beloved son. Well, let me suggest to you in this hour our 40 days of trial and temptation. Even if you do belong to him. Now, hear this as a believer as well. Even if you do belong to him. Ask yourself this question. What kind of a father would bring such difficulty upon his son whom he supposedly loves? This is a battle for temptation that doesn't seek to simply point out, Jesus, you're hungry. But it goes much deeper. This is how temptation attacks each and every one of us. Not simply pointing out, you're in a difficult place, aren't you? And leave it at that. But it seeks to expose in your heart the thought, is God trustworthy? Is what he says to me genuine? Is it true? Can I hope? In it. Because what I see before my eyes, what I experience in my sadness, what I have in my anxiety and in my worry, says that I cannot. He says that I belong to him, that I am his child. Okay, fine, let's grant that. Okay, so you are his child, but let me ask you this. 
even if you are his child, ask yourself this, what kind of father would put such difficulty upon a child when he supposedly loves them? Because the father did say, in you I am well pleased. You see, do you see the deceptive power of Satan to oversimplify and thereby provide a very dark and hurtful proof against God in the gospel? He seeks to take from you all that by faith you rest upon. He seeks to twist by oversimplifying life's challenges and saying, here is a cause and here is an effect. This is why you're in this place. Because he doesn't love you. Because you don't belong to him. This is what Satan does just before he devours. George Whitfield once spoke of sin and temptation And he says this to us. Arise and call upon thy God in this hour. Thy spiritual enemy is not dead, but lurketh. He is seeking an opportunity how he may betray thee. Do you see the words of Whitfield is speaking to betrayal? Because again, temptation isn't often, if it is ever, the role of Captain Obvious. Simply state what is right directly before you. It is to move your attention away from what is in this moment, temptation, into a much darker fundamental doubt about God's truth and trustworthiness in going through it. That He is your shepherd. That He does love you. That He is your father, that you are his child. It implies the deadly appeal to rational proofs. So the final question then of the text this morning for our time together is this. So how do we fight against the flaming arrows of twisted rationale or twisted truth? That is, Satan says one thing twisting the Word of God, how do we combat it as believers? The simple answer is this, by knowing the truth, by knowing and putting on the armor of God, by being students who pursue, read, give ourselves to the Word of God. I know it seems quite straightforward and quite easy, but oftentimes it goes severely neglected in believers' lives. Oftentimes temptation has the opposite effect. We turn inward. We become isolationist, even in our communion with the Lord. But rather, as we see here with our Lord, Where we must go is we must flee to Him, not away from Him. And we do so by giving ourselves to the appointed means by which He works. If I could convince you of anything, it is the trustworthiness of our Lord 
And he has prescribed a means whereby he will work in overcoming sin and temptation. What are those means once again? But they are the reading, especially the preaching of the Word of God and His sacraments. It is these that we gather together around His table this morning to give ourselves through faith unto them that we may thereby be nourished in your faith. Christian, this morning, if your faith is weak, recall through this table, it clings to a very strong Lord. That is what is held out to you in this table. That weak and impoverished faith will be nourished here together at this table. The Lord will use these means by the working of the Holy Spirit in your life to strengthen you in your warfare against sin and temptation. And finally, herein, in this very table, as we see the Spirit's work in our Lord, this table, as we partake through faith, assures you in a very tangible and real way, once again, God's promises to you in the gospel are immutable. They are unchanging. Satan will seek at every pass to make you doubt them, to make you believe that he has revoked them, to make you doubt the heavenly pledge that said, you are my beloved child. In you, through faith in Christ, I am well pleased. I am your shepherd. I will provide for you. I will never forsake you. Satan will seek to say, is that really true? Here as we come to this table, we have a physical and tangible means whereby our Lord once again assures us those promises are true. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your immutable promises to us in the gospel. We thank you that they are never going to change, but they are provided us in Christ your Son who gave himself for us, both in his active obedience and his passive lying down in the table that he instituted, whereby we might be so nourished upon those promises. I pray for each one here that is struggling sin and its temptations, some slight and some overwhelming, that once again they would not turn inward but yet outward unto you and to your word. That Spirit would continue to aid and empower us in our warfare against sin and its temptations. Let indeed one little word fell him. In Christ's name we pray, amen.